0: Hungry. Kinder, wer hat hunger?
1: On Snap Judgment, we're getting hungry. Lamb, they hungry. Stories from all around the world about what people do when their belly starts growling.
2: Oh. It got to the point where, because I wasn't eating any food, I mean apart from sort of lizards that I could catch, small lizards, crickets, grasshoppers, a few bugs. Over the sort of 10, 12-day period that I was walking out there, I started losing weight and I just drank a heap of water, started eating leeches and frogs and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What is Snap Judgment? Is that left, that right, jump? Or don't? Snap Judgment? Storytelling with the beat from PRX. Ah. And NPR.
3: Affamato, affamato, affamato.
1: Stay tuned. Welcome to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. I'm Glenn Washington, and as you may or may not know, when I was a kid, I was in this wacky cult. We didn't have any Christmas or Easter, nothing like that. What we had were alternative holidays. Now, how many of y'all have ever heard of the Feast of Trumpets or the Week of Unleavened Bread? (laughs) <laughs> I didn't think so. But the worst holiday was something us kids took to calling the unholiday. The adults called it the Day of Atonement. It was a day where everybody was supposed to take time and reflect and get right with the Lord. And that's cool. But as part of the cleansing process, everybody was supposed to fast. No food, no water, no nothing for 24 hours from sunset to sunset and we started young like seven or eight years old we'd be on a complete fast and that was no good I'm not sure if it was a psychological or physical thing or what but I do know as soon as the fast started the very second the clock ticked I was hungry starving and it wasn't just me my brothers and I would all be staring at the refrigerator looking pitiful go to bed all hungry. Get up careful not to accidentally swallow any toothpaste because that was against the rules. Then get ready for church. But hungry as we were, we had to sit and listen to this wah, 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 wah. And see, being little kid hungry makes you deaf and blind. You can only think of pancakes with creamy butter and hot syrup dripping in your fat-seared sausages and the eggs with that hollandaise sauce and man, it wasn't even just us youngsters. You'd hear all kinds of big bellies making growling noises and then came the worst part. Worse than the services, we'd go home and we'd just sit there. No TV, no radio, no games, no nothing, you're supposed to maybe just read the Bible reflect. But I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't want to reflect. I wanted to eat, but several hours remain on the clock. Every second, more painful than the last. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Absolutely no food till sunset. And you best believe we knew exactly when sunset was. To the second. Till then, we waited. it wait, it'll wait, it'll wait, it'll wait, it'll wait, it wait we heard my father say, all right, y'all. All right, get in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now it wasn't quite over. The sun was still in the sky. This was just to get ready. We weren't allowed to start meal preparation ourselves before sundown. But there was a loophole. Somebody else, some unbeliever who didn't know about their damnation, could fix a plate up for you. We were headed over to the Sweden house, man. The Sweden house was a full on all you could eat buffet. Meatballs, fried, smelt, roast beef, French fried potato, dessert, and we had to get positioned. we pulled pull into the parking lot and already you could see some of the church members' cars, but it still wasn't sunset. And you couldn't be seen running top speed just to get to the front of the line. That was not holy, not holy at all. First people would kinda of just wait in their cars. Then they, you know, shamble out, get out the car, nice and slow. But like they had all the time in the world. All the time, tick tock. Unless it looked like somebody might hit the line in front of them. Yep, then they picked up the pace with a quickness. And when sunset finally hit, all pretense was off. You'd see church brethren in fancy clothes suddenly running toward the growing line. No cutting! No cutting now, Carl! We'll see you inside! Ha! And inside, it was on. People crowding, hollering, sweet and I didn't know it. Hit it. Bewildered-looking staff, people running around. I focused, 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 piled my plate. More chicken, more ribs, fried dough balls, stuffing, man. Got to have that stuffing. Love the stuffing for real. They used to have the best stuffing. I ran to the table one millisecond ahead of my brothers and tucked into the plate like I had never seen food before. Mm. Mm -hmm. It was good. It was real good. Today on Snap Judgment, hungry. We're gonna take a up close and personal look at what it feels like when you think maybe, just maybe, if it was fixed right, you could eat the person sitting next to you. And because we spare no expense on Snap Judgment, no expense at all, producer Anna Sussman brings us this first story from the land down under.
2: travelling across Australia on my way to a place called Port Macdonald, which is in the top end of Australia. There's not a lot of people out there. There's small communities scattered throughout that part of the territory. It's very dry, pretty harsh, scrubby sort of land. There's not a lot out there. Kangaroos, a few bugs, wild dogs. I always listen to music. I was listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers. This was the third time I'd actually gone around Australia, so I knew the area, I knew the roads, and I, sort of, I wasn't that worried to be driving out there on my own because I'd done it before. I don't know, if you, you might hear a lot of stories about Australia, people going missing in the outback, and <laughs> yeah, I used to make fun of those people. You know, you don't think that anything like that could happen to you. I saw some people, it looked like they were broken down on the side of the road, and this is what they led me to believe anyway. I ended up stopping to help them, and I let one of them in my car, about half an hour or 40 minutes down the road, this guy somehow managed to slip something into a can of Pepsi that I had beside me. Uh, I started feeling drowsy. And the next thing I know, this guy was wrestled me for the, for the steering wheel and, and you know, we sort of ended up having a little bit of a fighting match in the car and then ended up getting stuck down the bottom of a ravine. Then I passed out. I remember waking up. It was dark when I woke up and I could smell the earth. I could hear this noise coming from behind me. But as I stood up, big flash of daylight hit me in the eyes and I realised that I was sort of in a hole and I'd been covered up with a piece of tarpaulin. I looked up and a few dingoes sort of standing around. It looked like one of them was actually scratching at the tarpaulin trying to get under it. So that's what sort of woke me up, I think. Picked up a couple of rocks and threw them at the dingoes and they all took a few steps back. And, you know, I was still a bit dazed and confused and I sort of tried to work out where I was. I realised I had no shoes and no socks and um, I was basically left in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and they'd taken everything else from me. I ended up walking most of that day. Never thought I'd actually be out there for any length of time so I just sort of kept walking, thinking that any minute now I'm gonna walk over a sort of horizon or the next batch of trees and find a road and go and find my car and everything was gonna be okay. The first two days I was out there, I didn't have any water at all, so I had to um, had to urinate in my jocks and then wring it out in my mouth to get some sort of fluid, um, which was pretty disgusting. If you ever have to do it, make sure you let it cool down first because yeah, it's not very nice. But then on the third day, after praying for water, I saw a massive thunderstorm off in the distance, so I sort of ran towards that and managed to find a, a heap of water. I didn't see any more water for about eight days after that but what I did was the t-shirt that I was wearing I took that off and I used to drag that through the grass in the morning that sort of you know soak up all the dew and I'd get a little bit of water every morning that way but I didn't really see any decent water for I don't know a good 10 to 12 day period. I was getting pretty hungry because I hadn't eaten anything yet. I was looking for some witchetty grubs inside a couple of old dead tree trunks. I stuck my hand down inside one of them and I got bitten by a big bush centipede which basically started to paralyse my body after about four or five hours. I ended up about three and a half, four hours later sort of staggering around, screaming out, trying (laughs) trying to get help from someone. But obviously there was nobody out there and then the last thing I know, I passed out. It got to the point where Because I wasn't eating any food, I mean apart from sort of lizards that I could catch, small lizards, crickets, grasshoppers, a few bugs. Over the sort of 10-12 day period that I was walking out there I started losing weight and I just started losing energy. I ended up finding the dam and I camped on that dam for about 10 days, drank a heap of water, started eating leeches and frogs and things like that. And then one day I decided that, yep, feel pretty good again. I've got some food, got some water. So I tried to start walking again. I walked about maybe four or five k's away from the dam and ended up dropping from dehydration again. I woke up in the sun, sort of roasting away and I just thought there's no way I can walk anymore. So I literally turned around and started walking back towards the dam and it took me about six hours to walk five kilometers back to the dam. So yeah, I just realized that I didn't have the energy to walk away from there. I was stuck there, I wasn't going anywhere. I thought, if nobody comes to find me, then there's a good chance that I won't, I won't walk out of here. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a worry. Well, first there was the dingoes. I mean, if anybody knows anything about Australia, dingoes can be pretty vicious. They hunt in packs and they sort of prey on anything that's weak. And They must have realised that um, I was in a bit of trouble this one pack of dingoes literally followed me the whole way and hung around the little camp that I made. They basically stayed there the whole time, more or less waiting for me to die, I think. Because I'd been eating different types of vegetation, I was actually stripping plants with my teeth. I think I got some splinters or something under one of my teeth and uh, ended up turning into an abscess. And one morning I woke up and I, I thought I'd been bitten by a spider because the whole side of my mouth was swollen up and, and I was really worried I actually thought yeah this is it I'm gonna die so I sort of laid there for the next sort of six to eight hours waiting to die but I didn't I just laid there in pain I, I broke a bit of wire off the fence and I ended up um, stabbing the blisters inside my mouth with this bit of wire and then I just ended up spitting all the bad blood out the blisters just kept coming up even though I kept popping they kept coming up and the tooth was getting loose and I just realised that the tooth had to come out so um, I ended up getting the, this really big, thick piece of fencing wire and ended up hooking it under, underneath my tooth. So I, I had two or three goes at it. The first go I had at it, I passed out and then I woke up and I was sort of in a pool of blood coming out of my mouth and then got up the courage and had another go at it. The second time I didn't pass out but it was, yeah, I was in a lot of pain. And then the third go I had at it, I actually pulled it out but as I pulled it out I passed out from pain again and then I woke up and I had this tooth hanging out my mouth. What freaked me out the most was watching myself just get thinner and thinner every day. Even though I was trying to eat as much as I could, the dam that I, that I was staying on, I ended up eating all the frogs, all the leeches, I ate all the crickets, all the grasshoppers. I just slowly watched myself yeah, getting thinner and thinner and thinner. I remember sitting there one day just thinking to myself, you know, how thin does a person get before they actually die? Every day I woke up, I saw a new bone poking out somewhere. The dam was getting dry. It was at that point where I was just waiting to die. It was just a matter of time. I think about your family, think about your friends, think about all the things you wish you'd done. I wanted to do a lot more traveling overseas. Hadn't had kids yet. I put a cross above the shelter that I made out there. I thought eventually, surely someone might come across this dam and if they do, if the dingoes haven't come and taken my body away, that there'll be some remains left inside and my family might have something to bury. I wrote a little message in the side of my cattle trough that, it, that I made my home. You know, I just put, wrote my name up in there and my date of birth and things like that. So I thought if, you know, if they do find me, then somebody will know whose bones were there anyway. Every night I sort of entombed myself just in case I didn't wake up the next day. When I first started putting the shelter together, I'd be sitting in it sometimes and the wind would whistle through there and it used to sound like a, a car driving down the road and I'd jump out to see if it was and, and of course it never was until this one day I was laying in the shelter, I heard this noise and it sounded like a car and I, you know it's like boy a cry a wolf yeah yeah whatever it's not really happening and then all of a sudden I heard it change gears and I thought no that's not the wind, the wind doesn't change gears. I quickly jumped out of my shelter the guys that were in the car they thought that I was a dingo up on top of the dam, so they pulled the gun out. Looked through the scope of the gun and saw that it, um, that it was a human up on top of the dam and not a dingo. And then they sort of came over and said, you know, are you all right? And started asking me questions, who I was, where I was, what the hell I was doing out there. And I started to go through the whole story and they, yeah, they literally just, they couldn't believe it. Couldn't stop touching them, <laughs> just to make sure they were real. I was actually out there for 71 days in total before I actually got found, so not quite three months. But yeah, then they just took me back to their station house, called the um, Flying Doctor Service, and then the Flying Doctor Service came in the next day and picked me up. I was in the hospital for about uh, five or six weeks um, before I signed myself out. I was so happy about being back in the land of the living that I didn't want to sit in hospital. When I actually had to walk into a shopping centre, it was full, filled with hundreds of people, and I, you know, I was trying to get my head around actually dodging people and dodging trolleys and having to talk to people. It was a little bit daunting, a bit overwhelming. It sort of scared me a bit. Then I'd be going lock myself in my house for two or three days. When I got back, a lot of people didn't believe that um, I'd been out there for any length of time. That was, that was what was the worst part about it, that I'd actually spent all that time out there, nearly died, hadn't done anything wrong, and was being made to feel like that I lied about the whole thing, you know? And it's like, well, I'm not here to tell you that I'm telling the truth. I'm happy just that I'm, I'm actually alive and I'm happy to be here. Four months later, five months later, I went back out there. And um, I just, yeah, I just felt like, you know, a big part of my life had changed, and I just, I just, I needed a bit of closure. I just felt like I left a part of me out there. So uh, we went out there, and we nearly got stuck out there again. Myself and um, the reporter that I went out with, we got our car stuck in the mud. We ended up camping out in the same hut that <laughs> I, I hated for so long. that I just thought, oh no, here we go again. You know, it's all happening all over again. But luckily we'd already told the station where we were and when we didn't turn up, they sent the chopper out to have a look for us. And the same station guys that sort of rescued me the first time came back out and rescued the both of us the second time. It was a bit of a laughing matter, actually. They, they thought it was a great joke. So, <laughs> I was having nightmares, honey. I, just, I literally couldn't sleep that night. I was having nightmares. It was unbelievable. Everyone was quite relieved to hear that chopper land, I tell you.
1: Many thanks, many, many thanks to Ricky McGee for sharing his tale. And yes, dear snappers, he wrote a book. It's called Left for Dead, How I Survived 71 Days in a Desert Hell. Amazing story, Ricky. Lovingly produced by our own Anna Sussman. Because today in Snap Judgment, we're hungry. We've got some stories coming up that you're going to want to stick in the oven and sop up with some gravy when Snap Judgment returns. I'm going to have uh, three Whoppers, two Big Macs, four bean burritos, one of them, uh, them three-piece original recipe chicken dinners, a large fry, and um, uh, why don't you eat them with a diet coke? <laughs> it be 2011. Drive around. Right? Because today on Snap Judgment, friends, we're hungry. And you know... How we like to have our fun? I can snap, but sometimes, sometimes, Uber producer Mark stitch, all your fun, and your good time games, have got to come to an end, get to the story, and that's when we call Mr. Joel Ben Izzy, we speak low,
0: respectfully, and we ask, hey Joel, tell us a story. When I was 12, where I lived, which was the suburbs of the suburbs of the suburbs, it was streets after streets after streets leading to freeways, and I hated it. I was stuck taking buses, and as a kid growing up in L.A., cars were kind of sacred. Buses were for losers. They were hot, slow, greenhouses on wheels. I'm the only one riding the bus. That's the other thing. The buses are so bad, nobody rides them. And in protest, I decided I would sit in the seat reserved for elderly and handicapped. So there I was, and here comes a guy. He looks like he's about 100 years old. He's walking with a cane and says to the bus driver, how much is it? It's a quarter. 25 cents. Guy reaches in his pocket. 5, 10, 11, 12, that's it. I see my whole life passing before my eyes. It will be spent on this bus. Now, with a whole bus to sit on, he wants to sit where I am. So I move over to the side, I scoot over, and he sits. And he, he looks me up and down, and then he does an odd thing. He reaches into his shopping bag, and he pulls out an orange, which he holds up for me to look at. And finally he says, what do you think? And I look at the orange and say, I think it's an orange. He said, yes, it, it's an orange. but. What do you think of it?" Well, I took the orange and I looked at it, and of course, pretty much it's an orange. I looked at the orange for a long time and he finally said, You don't understand, do you? He said, You know, I'm not from around here. Duh. He said, I I came from Germany after the war. Did you study the war? I said, Yeah, yeah, I learned about the war in, in school. He said, Yeah, yeah. He said, Did you learn about the place I came from? a place called Auschwitz. And I said, in fact, I I actually read an article about it. There was a big sign over the front that said, work makes free. And he got very excited. He said, when you read the article, did they tell you it was black and white? And I said, "Uh, the pictures in the article were black and white, but the place wasn't black and white. He said, no, it was black and white. He said, what I mean is that the guards wore black, black uniforms with black shiny boots. And you could look at your face in the reflection on the boots and you'd see a a pale white face. And there on the skin were numbers. Look. He pulled up his sleeve and he said, you see these numbers? They're blue now. But when they burned them in, they were black. Everything was black, white, gray. The fence was black. The sky was gray. The snow would fall. One day it would be white. The next day the ashes from the smokestacks would turn it gray. But what I most remember was the food was gray. In a big barrel, they would cook maybe eight or nine potatoes and boil them till they dissolved. And you'd get one bowl of this each day, the black metal bowl. And if you got a piece of potato, you were lucky. So this was what we did. We worked. We waited for our gray soup and tried to stay warm. Now to stay warm, I would look for paper. I could stuff the paper in my shoes or put it inside my black and white paper uniform to stay warm, and it was one day I was looking near the fence and, and what did I see there was a piece of paper like newspaper. I lifted the paper up, and there in the center was something that I saw and I, I had to stare at because I, I couldn't I couldn't believe what it was. Well I reached down and I grabbed it. And I hid it. And you have to understand what a treasure this was. If someone had seen me, they would have killed me just to take it. I hid this orange inside my clothes and in the barracks I hid it in a crack in the wall. That night while everyone slept, I took it out. Then I held it in my, my hands and you have to understand how hungry I was. I had eaten nothing but potato water for six months. I wanted to eat that orange like you would eat an apple. But I knew that if I did, I I would have nothing. So instead, I, I rolled it between my hands. I took my fingernail and I scratched at that orange and I smelled it. As I smelled that orange, I was not in Auschwitz anymore. I was in the land called Palestine. My cousin had moved there before the war and he had written here, we grow oranges. And the smell of these oranges fills the air. It's the smell of freedom. For the moment I smelled that, I was free. I opened my eyes. I I was back in Auschwitz. I I couldn't eat the orange. I put it back. And the next night I took it out again. And again scratched it and again smelled it. And I told myself I wouldn't eat it until after a, a very bad day. Well, you didn't have to wait long in Auschwitz for a bad day. Came a few days later, a a selection. A guard stood at the front of a long line. He had a gun with a bayonet on the end. He would stare at the person in front of line, and he would point right or left. Those sent to the left went to the showers, and they never returned. Those to the right went back to the barracks. He looked at me, said... Right. And that night, I gathered those around me in the barracks, and they said, I have something. And I brought it out for them. And each one looked at it as I had, because you see, they had forgotten the color. And we passed it around, each one rolled it in their hands, and finally, when it came back to me, I, I peeled it, and I gave each person a section. I closed my eyes, and I ate mine, and I will tell you nothing, nothing before or since has tasted so sweet. It was the taste of, of freedom. It was the taste of hope. I gathered up the peels, and I kept them, and I took them out to smell each night to remind me of freedom. Before long came spring. Finally, the snow melted, and there, through the cracks in the cement, plants came up. Tiny green plants. To the guards, they were weeds. To us, they were color. Eventually, the war ended, and I came here. But you see that orange? It it saved my life. With that, the bus stopped. He got up, and he said, Young man, remember the sweet things in life.
1: Thank you, Joel. Now, if you want to find out more about the world of Joel Benizzi, go ahead and click over to storypage.com. That piece was produced by Most Steph, our own Stephanie Fu. Now then, have you ever been on one of those fancy cruise ships that have teams of chefs preparing gourmet meals to your own personalized specifications? No? Well, Donna Salter She's never been on one of those ships, either.
3: Well, I'm originally from Canada, from British Columbia. I was illegally in the United States, so I had to leave. I thought I would have to go back to Canada. I answered an ad on the back of the Village Voice, actually. It said, crew for sailing boats going to Europe, and I thought, wow, that's a cheap way to get to Europe. Well, I didn't know anything about sailing, so I kind of lied. I did sort of say that I I was an experienced sailor, and... Well, I've been sailing once. The whole point of it was that these people seemed to know what they were doing. But in retrospect, they had never sailed out of sight of the yacht club, so they weren't very good sailors either. And they thought, well, we'll just get in our boat and go to Europe because we'll be able to find it because we have GPS. (laughs) I flew down to Fort Lauderdale. I've set out from the yacht club (laughs) and started sailing. They did not know enough about sailing to know that they were stupid. And I didn't know enough about sailing to know that I was stupid. And we all just sort of piled onto this boat together. (laughs) In order to get to Portugal, you have to stop. So the first leg of the trip is always to Bermuda. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience as the grubby water of the coast slipped away and you get into this beautiful deep navy blue water. I can't even describe it, it's so beautiful. But you see nothing, there's no land, there's nothing except the ocean and the sky. But as soon as you lose sight of land you get Very, very ill. We all turned sort of green and threw up a lot. It was supposed to take five to seven days to get there. About the second day when we'd sort of recovered from our seasickness, we were becalmed, which meant we had no wind, so we couldn't sail at all. So we're just sitting there, waiting for wind. Once we got underway again, a sail tour. We had no way to sail the boat and no way to fix it. Well, I thought, I really don't know what I'm doing and we're in the middle of the ocean and I can't see land and I don't know where I am and that wasn't the worst thing, the worst thing was when the alternator broke and then we were really in trouble because once the alternator broke all the power went out so we had no communication system we had no gps so we had no way of knowing where we were we had no lights the meat that was in the freezer is rotting and there's no fresh food by the end we had um i think two jars of chili peppers and a jar of mustard which you don't really want to eat when you have no water. And the water that was in the tanks had been stirred up sufficiently that it really, when it came out, the water was kind of the color of Coca-Cola. So you couldn't drink that. We had nothing, nothing. And then the wind just stopped. So we're just kind of sitting in the middle of the ocean. You know, the captain said that he could use a sextant, but he he didn't know how to use it clearly and it's very hot, and you're sitting in the middle of the ocean. We ended up swimming around the boat to try to cool off. I'm thinking about sharks, and there was a dog and a cat on the boat. We didn't know where they were pooping, but we could sure smell it. There had been this meat in the refrigerator and everything. It sort of was very smelly. Everything that was possible that could break broke. The door had broken on the head, and the head had broken off of its moorings. So in order to go to the bathroom, you just had to like, you know, put your feet up on the wall and hold on to the door. When you're in a situation like that, it gets worse every day. You know, you think, well, it can't get any worse than this. And then the next day it gets worse. And then the next day it gets worse. So you just try not to think about it. I didn't actually start thinking this was crazy until I started hallucinating. I was all by myself up on the deck of the boat when I would be on watch overnight. And then I started having auditory hallucinations and I could hear things. I could hear people calling me and I could see lights. The flashlight batteries had started to go dim and there was nothing. Just voices, just voices. And I thought, this is crazy. This is crazy. I'm scared. I'm not gonna get out of this one. I thought I was gonna die, out at sea. And finally I went down to the other woman who was on board. I said, I think I hear something. I think I see something. And she said, oh, you're hallucinating. I've been hallucinating for three days. <laughs> and, and so, I asked her if she would mind coming up and sitting watch with me and we started sitting watches together just to make sure that the hallucinations weren't real. That was after about 10 days and we were kind of hungry then too. We hadn't had anything for about two days. Well on the 15th day, That was the day we caught the fish. And we pulled the fish into the boat and the skipper who had a dog and a cat, the dog immediately sort of dove on the fish as soon as it landed in the cockpit. I can't tell you how intensely I hated the skipper at this point because I realized that he had put my life and everybody else's life in jeopardy just for some fantasy that he had. As everything kept getting worse, he kept reassuring us that he had it under control, and he never had it under control. He didn't have it under control in the beginning, and he shouldn't have been sailing this boat. The only thing I wanted to do was get away from him. And then I saw a fishing boat. It was the first thing I'd seen in maybe 10 days. I was so relieved. I was so relieved. I hadn't known how scared I was until I realized that we were actually gonna live. And I stood on the front of the boat and started screaming, help me, help me. The skipper told me to shut up. We'd find Bermuda on our own. He was a veteran from WW2 the big one and he really didn't want anybody's help especially a woman and I said no I'm getting out of here (laughs) and so I started screaming and waving my hands and asking the fishing boat to come and get me and um, so the fishing boat pulled alongside and I said just take us to anywhere anywhere that, that there's land they led us to Bermuda I don't even think the boat bumped into the dock before I was off the boat. I didn't care about the harbor master. I could have I I would have been arrested rather than stay on that boat one second longer. And uh, I got off the boat and I went and ate a steak. Oh, that steak tasted better than any steak I've ever had. I'll tell you something there there are two things that are really good when you get off the boat. Food and a shower. <laughs>
1: That story was produced by our own Stephanie Fu, and many thanks to Donna Salter for sharing her tale. Now, perhaps you too, at some time were trapped on a sailing vessel under the iron rule of a maniacal captain bent on reaching the North Pole. Something like that. You know you just can't kind of keep that thing inside. It's going to fester and burn. You got to let somebody know. You got to let us know at snapjudgment.org, we got shows, movies, stuff, all for the asking, just for the asking. You like that Facebook? We've got that Facebook. You like the Twitter? We've got the Twitter. Hit us up, share your story. We promise not to tell anybody unless, you know, maybe they enjoy national radio programming. Keep it locked right here. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. Now, our next story is about a lot of things. Some say it's about cheese. Some say it's about diaspora. And they're not wrong, but really, to me, this story is about banks. And we've got a lot of love for listener Deborah Salen of San Francisco for sharing her story with the Snap.
4: So it's 1984, and I have this amazing opportunity to go to the former Soviet Union. We were going to visit you know, and see all these really great sites in Moscow, and also have the opportunity to visit with some Soviet Jews. Jewish families were not permitted to practice their culture and their religion in the former Soviet Union, and they felt persecuted, and they wanted to leave. And they were refused exit, and so they were nicknamed refuseniks basically the government would accuse the father of the family of having state secrets and so when he tried to leave it was like an offense against the country and so the fathers were often arrested and they were taken to different work camps like in Siberia and then the rest of the family sort of had to manage without anything. I mean, their living situation was just really difficult. We're in a very small room here right now. It's maybe like 10 feet by 6 feet. In a room like this, it could be a bedroom for four people. Even by Russian standards, they were extremely poor. And the whole purpose of the trip was really to try and visit, to try and help them. We wanted to give them some kind of donation or something, but they weren't allowed to deal in any kind of foreign currency, that was illegal. What we could do is buy little things that weren't really available to most of the people, aspirin, nylon stockings, chewing gum, and things that would cost us 50 cents, and then we could give them as gifts to the families. And then they would sell them on the black market so that they could get enough money to feed themselves for the month. One day in the Ukraine somewhere, we stayed over in this hotel. It was really crazy because they're just like completely like not friendly, not service oriented people at all. They're just like, where are you going? Why are you going there? They called them the concierge, but it was really a KGB agent because they were just constantly watching our comings and goings. And every time we would come back to these different hotels, our belongings would be all different they would have gone through the drawers and taken things off of hangers and laid them out on the bed. And it just felt like they were really harassing us, especially in the Ukraine. It was really creepy. And so we went out to this town square, just looked around, took a few pictures and stuff like that. And then we went to visit this family. And we had a great visit with them and it was really cool. But we came back to the hotel in the evening. we were really tired and we went to sleep. And all of a sudden, the phone started ringing. And we'd answer it, hello nobody was there and then we would answer hello hello and there'd be nobody there or you just hear like this and this went on for like two and a half hours they just kept calling us like every 10 minutes every 10 minutes finally it was about 1 in the morning and somebody on the other end of the line said you both must come down and report to the lobby we have a meeting to discuss some things with you we got dressed and we went down to the lobby and the quote unquote manager of the hotel, who I'm certain was a KGB guy, um, brought us into his office. This guy is like, gives us this big speech about we really shouldn't be using our spare time to go visit Soviet people because they don't need to be exposed to Western ideas. I really felt like we were in some danger because he was, um, he had a very scary, threatening tone of voice. He warned us not to leave the hotel without permission, that bad things could happen to us, that it wasn't so easy to get back to Moscow. He didn't say anything directly, but he led us to believe that we could be in danger. And then when he spoke to me, he was like coming around the desk and putting his hand on my shoulder. I was not sure that he wasn't gonna attack me. It was about 3.30 in the morning when he finally let us out. And so we went to bed, we were obviously very shaken up. So it was clear that it was gonna be really hard to get out of the hotel. But it was our last day in that city and we really wanted to go visit this other family. They had a couple of people in the family that were sick and they had a grandmother. Then the next morning, we found out this news that the leader of the country, Yuri Andropov, had dropped dead. So everybody comes into the breakfast room and they had this big television and it was all decked out with flowers, like as if the television was the casket and all the staff was standing in front of the television and watching a funeral. After about 20 minutes, we realized that nobody was looking at us and we just sort of finished our little cup of coffee and just left. We snuck out of the dining room so quickly that we didn't even have time to go up to our rooms to bring them the gifts that we had for them. And so we figured, okay, well we'll just go shopping in the, you know, in the town square. It was really cold outside, I remember it was so 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 cold. We crossed the street and there were a bunch of different little boutiques and shops and stuff was strange about these different soviet shops is they have nothing in them i mean they're like these beautifully decorated stores and there's nothing for sale in them they just told us this word that they always say is called deficit so they say deficit all the time like basically they've run out of these things they were saying that they hadn't had a lot of different products for a long time and then we thought well maybe on the other side of this courtyard there might be a few more stores so we started going into this courtyard and all of a sudden My friend and I, she looks to the right, I look to the left, and there's four guys coming from each corner of this courtyard. All four of them were wearing identical outfits. It was really bizarre. Dark, gray, thick wool coats, and they had these matching scarves. They had this red and gray wool plaid scarves on. And then we noticed that all four of them had these sticks in their hands, like billy clubs, and then they started doing this kind of noise with their hand, just like that. And it was so scary. And they were just looking at us. And they said something to us in Russian. Go! Get from here! Get from here! Out of here! Out of here! And then they started coming towards us. It was like the first time that I really felt it wasn't an adventure anymore. There was a threat. You kind of blank out almost. It's just like, you just just go. Just get out. And we just turned and walked really fast. They were around us and they, they let us out. They kind of opened up their little cage and let us through. We wanted to just find a place that felt safe. And uh, we saw there was a little shop. And it was a cheese store. We tried to, you know, can we buy some cheese? And she looked at us with a very strange look, like, you you want cheese? <laughs> and we said, oh, yes, we love cheese, we love Russian cheese. And then there was this one refrigerated area, and inside this refrigerator were all these wheels of cheese. But it was all one kind. She said, no Russian cheese, Holland cheese, Holland cheese. And I said, OK, OK, Holland cheese, we love Holland cheese. We used all of the rubles that we had, 16 or 18 dollars, and it bought us at least 30 pounds of cheese. I mean it was a huge amount of cheese. I can't even begin to tell you how much cheese we had. I think we were in that cheese shop for over an hour. Finally my friend and I you know kind of talked in the cheese shop and said well do you think we should like try again? I don't know if it's safe. We looked around the courtyard kind of from a distance and saw that there was nobody in there so we just said you know what we're gonna go for it and we just took a deep breath and crossed the courtyard and everything was fine. We got into the house. We just knocked on their door and they opened the door and they were like, hi, we got your name from the Soviet Jewish connection and we couldn't bring you very much, but we have a lot of cheese. (laughs) They were really, really grateful. They told us that the cheese that we bought for them would feed their family, five people, for like three weeks. The whole family, just just that cheese. When the grandmother received the cheese, she held a few of the packages in her hand and she said, this cheese should bring you and us the same muzzle in our life, the same happiness. You should go and you should get married and you should have many children and they should have much cheese in their life.
1: When I was a kid, sometimes we were broke and sometimes we weren't. And though I was no baby Einstein, when my mama told me to remember and bring my brown paper bag home, I figured we was in for a long winter. Bring the paper bag home. Bring the paper bag home. And I tried, you know, to remember and be careful with the bag and everything, and I was. I really was until it got destroyed in the great Miss Moby, I'm losing my mind. Call a substitute teacher incident. So instead, my mama wrapped my lunch in one of those big paper bags you put your groceries in. And I had it folded down so nobody would see. Had it in my jacket when we sat down at the cafeteria. I was starving, but I had to be straight, magical. David Copperfield sneaking out my little peanut butter and apple sandwich, but noticing the poor black kid was Sammy McGee's full-time job, and Sammy McGee never took a day off. Hey, hey. Sammy ripped open the jacket. Whoa, oh, that's a great big bag. You must be really hungry to need a great big bag like that. Let's see what's inside. He grabbed my sack and started pulling stuff out. Gimme that. I-, I tried snatching it back, but Sammy was huge with these big Thick, dirty fingers. First he pulled out my unsweetened, shredded wheat squares and he sniffed, <sighs> yeah, this is what they eat. <laughs> Everybody screamed, screaming. Then he opened up my wrapped aluminum foil. And this, this is what they pick out of your garbage when you're sleeping. And he dumped the lima beans from last night's dinner on the ground. Oh, now, now you go clean that up. Make me. I knew as soon as I said it, the wrong thing had come out of my mouth. Sammy smiled and spoke loud enough for everybody to hear. I don't make niggers," said Sammy McGee. "I sell 'em. I came home with a bloody lip and a swollen eye after my detention for starting fights." still hungry because my lunch lay on the cafeteria floor. My mama gave me some ice and said, let's go to the IGA, the only store in Kingston, Michigan, the only store where everybody knew everybody and everybody had to look at us when we went into the store. It didn't touch my mom's. Regal focused careful. She checked the ingredients and the price of everything before it went in our car got in line to pay and i saw her reach for the food stamps i backed away like i didn't know her back then food stamps were real coupons that you tore out of a book if your purchase had any change left over you would get the actual change money and it took money to buy deodorant dishwashing liquid non-food items so my mother Messed with her food stamps, bought some stuff, got her changed, then got right back in line, bought some more stuff, got some more change. People laughing, mama paying them no mind back in line again and again and again till she had money to buy brown paper bags. I couldn't get far enough from her. I waited outside by the car, let her push the cart of groceries by herself when we drove My stomach hurt. We got home and put the food away and my mother started cooking cornbread and beans. I was so hungry waiting and I finally said it, mama, mama, some of them kids today said they saw you picking through the garbage at the back of the grocery store. Was they lying? She looked at me like I was crazy. They busy throwing perfectly good food away back there. See them grapes? Look at these grapes. Ain't a thing wrong with these grapes. They're going in your lunch tomorrow. I got some more ice for my eye. I sat down in front of the TV until I heard her, cheerful. Dinner ready. So hungry, I was almost blind. I took out my spoon, put it in the bowl of red beans. Boy, say your grace first. I didn't say anything. I tried, I tried, but nothing came out of my mouth. Say your grace or get up from my table. I bowed my head. Thank you, Jesus, for this food. It's happened. It's happened one more time. Understand that Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never, ever alone. Never alone, friends. Please, put your hands together for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Most Steph, our own Stephanie Foo, stepped up and put a little something special into this episode. Thank you, Stephanie. And know this: Criminals, they can't just come rolling in the Snap Judgment studios unless they speak first... With Rita Daniels. You understand? You capiche? Anna Sussman, she knows the exchange rate for three heads of a sheep. Half man, half machine, Will Urbina. Half machine, half another kind of machine, Mr. Joe Golding. Now, if you see the corporation for public broadcasting falling, falling, falling towards you, don't just stand there. Get a trampoline. Just like in the cartoon snappers, they bounce. Many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Public Radio Exchange, put in the public in public radio, PRX.org. And even though this is not the news, in fact, you could hit me over the back of the head with a tire iron, throw me in the middle of an Australian outback, and watch as I fended off dingo dog, living on witchetty grubs, crawling under old pieces of wood, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is N.P.R.